If you brought a Bible this morning, would you open with me to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9? Uh, let me just say that it's really good to be back with you again. I've missed you <laughs> in the last two months. Uh, but I want to uh, take a shameless moment, as I want to do, especially at the beginning of every semester, and ask that you would continue to pray for the organization with which I have been involved for going on 24 years now. Uh, Reformed University Fellowship, or RUF for short, uh, is the campus ministry of the Presbyterian Church in America, the denomination of which your pastor, Jimmy Young, is ordained and maintains his credentials. Uh, but we have a campus ministry that I've been working with for all these years that has just gotten cranked up. And there's really no more encouraging and yet also uh, nervous time than when uh, the students come back for school. Uh, they've turned out in mass. We've had an unbelievable kickoff across the country uh, with a lot of our ministries getting kicked off. And so I just would encourage you to pray this week, if you think of it, of a campus minister that's somewhere near to you. Uh, especially, I would ask you to remember John Kraft, who is the RUF campus minister at Rhodes College here in town, as well as John Crosby, uh, who is at the University of Memphis, my old job from many years ago. Uh, those guys are getting uh, going and cranking up, and I know they just would really appreciate your prayers for them. And of course, RUF, over 160 campuses uh, all across the country. Uh, just this morning on my way in, I was checking some social media from, a, from an event that they're going to have this evening at the, at the University of Hawaii. Why didn't I get that gig? University of Hawaii, it's actually a fantastic ministry that's going really well. So God's been gracious to you. We appreciate your prayers. Uh, but I want to look this morning at Mark chapter 9, a very familiar story, and try to unpack some things from that that might be an encouragement to us during a difficult time. Chapter 9, verse 1, and he said to them, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up to a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. The word literally is metamorphized in front of them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth can bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. Grass withers and flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. My children are getting over, older, and one of the great pains of your children aging is you, is you don't get to really watch on a regular basis uh, the wonderful animated classics they used to dominate their early life. I love those old cartoon movies. But there's still one movie that my children will still sit through. Uh, and, and it's the Disney picture, The Croods. If you haven't watched this, it is a wildly entertaining little cartoon about a family of, of prehistoric people who, 
who are trying to get through the difficulties of their own life by living through their father's creed. The father of the crudes was, was always trying to explain to them the most important thing they could remember in life, which was this. Don't ever not be afraid. But the problem is that way of looking at their life is, is crumbling down around them, quite literally. And through a, a young guide who shows up in their lives midway through the movie, a, an individual named Guy, he begins to tell them and say that there's another place. There's another place that we can all go to that's called tomorrow. And it's not crumbling like the world around you really is. And so they set out on this journey to follow the sun into tomorrow. Well, midway through their journey, they find themselves in a giant forest of huge trees. And you can feel the program beginning to kind of crack up. The fears of the family are sort of coming out and being able to be expressed. And they have no idea how they're going to get to that promised place. And not only that, they don't know if they're going to be able to do it with all the people in the family intact. And it's as if one moment Guy sort of sees the fears of the family kind of moving all around one particular evening. And he looks at him at one point and sort of says, stop, stop. I want you to see something. And so Guy grabs his torch and he guides the family up the tree. And as they climb through the tree and up to the very tops, eventually they all surface on the very top of the tree line. And Guy makes sure that everybody's looking around and he leans down to his torch and goes, and blows out the torch. And suddenly it is as if the entire sky just explodes in stars. <laughs> Thomas Newman, the great movie producer, sort of has this flash at that moment of music where all of a sudden the family looks up and sees the wonder that has been around them the whole time, but that they couldn't notice because of the little caves they were leaving, leading in. And at that moment, Guy looks at them and says, look, I am going to lead you to the place where it's all gonna be better and where it's all gonna be perfect. But you just have to believe me that this kind of beauty is available to you there no matter what. And the oldest daughter, who's a little bit in love with Guy, looks and makes her determination. And she says, I've decided I'm going to follow the sun and Guy into tomorrow. And the whole movie kind of moves on from that. It's a great scene. Go home and watch it. It'll be a good exercise. And the reason why my mind sort of was drawn to that wonderful scene is because I think it's very descriptive of what we have going on here in Mark chapter 9. The story of Jesus' transfiguration, as it's known in most of your headings written there in your Bible, is actually repeated in almost every one of the Gospels. And it was a story that clearly had made an extraordinary impression on the disciples, because it happens on the heels of Jesus telling his followers what his real mission is going to be like. Mind you, if you began to follow Jesus, you probably had some very interesting ideas about what his mission was going to look like. I mean, let's face it, when you followed this young carpenter around the Palestine and you watched him do the things that he did, like feed 5,000 people or, oh, I don't know, walk on water towards people, or uh, still a storm with his voice. 
you're probably thinking along the way, you know, this is going to be awesome. <laughs> just buckle up because eventually he's just going to blow all of our enemies away. But right before the scene that we've just read, Jesus explains to them, actually, that's not the way this is going to go down. Actually, my mission that I'm here to accomplish, that I know you're not going to understand, is that I am coming to die. But don't worry, because afterwards I'm going to rise from the dead, and they don't get it. They have no idea what he's talking about. But he leaves them with a reassurance that I'm going to leave you with a sense of the glory that is to come. You're not going to die until I take you, as it were, above the treetops and show you life from that perspective. And so he takes his three favorites up onto a mountain and he sort of shows them what's there. But that's the idea. The idea is to say you are going to need something that will encourage you when the world around you is going to try to convince you that there is no way God is in control of this universe. That there's no way that we will make it to the glory he's promised us. And in that moment, he's telling his people, I want you to remember this. And what he gives them is three things. Three sort of aspects of a scene that are, frankly, quite crazy if you really believe they're true. The first thing is we find that Jesus begins to shine in a cloud, of all things. Secondly, Moses and Elijah show up. And then thirdly, God the Father speaks out loud. Three bizarre things, but as you begin to dig into them, I think what you'll find is they are amazing for the encouragement that they came and gave to these people. So let's dive into it, shall we? Number one, we see that Jesus comes and begins to shine on the inside of a cloud. The passage there is kind of specific. It's not saying that there was a light that sort of shone onto Jesus and it sort of reflected him. It's that the light actually came from Jesus, that is, he was the one who was emanating the light. And it's fun to watch commentators attempt this in the way in which uh, Mark did. You know, Mark, we understand, was a bit of a simple author. He wasn't an educated man. And I love the way he describes it. He's like, look, I know you think that you've bleached your clothes white, but Jesus' clothes were whiter than anything could ever bleach. <laughs> As if that was the standard of whiteness at that time. What is he saying? He's saying that there was something there that I could not explain. What is Jesus doing? Jesus at this moment is letting his disciples get a picture of what he looked like when he's not holding it all in. The beauty of this passage is, is that every other time that Jesus is gathered with his people, he's having to restrain the glory that's inside of him. But he takes them up on the top and it's as if he says, I'm going to let it go for just a second. And it absolutely terrifies people. They begin to see exactly what Jesus looks like. And then there's a cloud. Bear with me for a moment. Because the cloud is kind of an important thing. And if you follow through what the Bible says about the cloud, you'll learn a lot about this. Because we find that this cloud has shown up before. There was a cloud in the Old Testament that would lead the people of Israel through a, as a cloud in the day, but a big ball of fire at night. There was a cloud that passed over Moses when, when God passed past Moses, when he hit him in the cleft of the rock like we, talk, we sung about this morning. We find that there's a cloud later on when they do the dedication of the tabernacle and the priests are all sort of intimidated to go in. The same cloud shows up later on when Solomon dedicates his temple 
And it freaks people out so much, they don't even want to go inside to the temple. (laughs) We find later on that Ezekiel sees the clouds sort of symbolically rise up over the Ark of the Covenant to the threshold of the temple because of Israel's apostasy in Ezekiel chapter 8. A few months after this particular event that we just read about, Jesus would actually leave the earth on a cloud from Acts chapter 1. We find out also that one day in 1 Thessalonians 4 that the faithful will go and meet Jesus, you guessed it, in a cloud. What's the point? The point of the cloud was that it had been 600 years since these people had seen what became known as the Shekinah glory of God. And when the cloud showed up, almost always in the Old Testament, it was fatal. You died when God began to speak in that way. No wonder they were terrified. So put these two things together. What's fascinating is is that there was a Jewish holiday known as the Feast of Tabernacles. And the whole celebration would culminate at the end of a few days where the two great posts that lined the front part of the temple, which in Jerusalem would have been the highest sort of marker of the entire city, these two great two to three story posts would be lit up, the Feast of Tabernacles. And it, would be, it was a huge fire on top of these to where we, we have ancient Near Eastern sources where people would say that the light from the thing would shine all over, that even at night you could see the posts lighting up all of Jerusalem from the huge flames that leapt from that. But in this particular year of Jesus' ministry, the very morning after this ceremony, in John chapter 8, Jesus lifts up his voice in front of all of the worshipers and he says, look, I am the light of the world. In other words, what what this on the posts here have been meaning to symbolize, I am. I am the pillar of fire that protected you from the Egyptians. I am the one who guided you day in and day out through the wilderness. I am the one who filled Solomon's temple. All of that was pointing to me. And now I am here and in the flesh for you. Now look, what I'm finding oftentimes, especially for college students, when they hear stories like that, step number one is like, do you really believe that happened? Yes, yes, okay, all right. Well, who cares then, secondly? So a guy started to glow. Why would that mean anything? Well, because these earliest of Christians understood that because of what Jesus had done, what he was turning into was represented for them their destiny. Don't miss this. This is a big Christian theological point. Whatever Jesus became, whatever whatever Jesus lived, whatever he has experienced... He did so on behalf of his people, so that for his people who are in him, they have the same destiny that he had. In other words, when those men saw Jesus transfigured into glory, they knew that that was what they were in for, for themselves. That was where they were headed. C.S. Lewis describes the luminescence of glory in some wonderful terms that we'll all know one day. He says, God makes the most feeble and filthy of us into dazzling, radiant, immortal creatures, pulsating all through with such love and energy and joy and wisdom as we cannot now imagine. 
We will become bright, stainless mirrors reflecting back to God his own boundless glory, his power and delight and goodness. That is what we are in for and nothing less. The point is this, and Lewis goes on to make the point, that if your friends could see you now the way you will be then, they would be tempted to fall down and worship you because of what they had seen God do in you and for you. My uh, predecessor at the University of Mississippi has a wonderful story, and I've held on to this illustration for like 20 years since I last heard it. But at the time, my, my friend had a small daughter who was maybe three or four years old, who he used to talk about one of the most precious times in his life was when his daughter would climb up into his lap. And she had a regular question that for about two years of her little childhood life, she would always look up and ask him, and it went a little bit like this. Daddy, is I pretty? And he went on to say that what he felt like is that that was the question that everyone's asking. Isn't there something inside of any, every life that looks and wonders, is there anything lovely in me? Is there anything commendable? Is there anything of beauty? Is there anything that someone else might ever look at and say, Wow. Or is there, when we look on the inside, nothing but the ugliness of my memory, the ugliness of my history, or the ugliness of my present motives for whatever I'm doing? Because in the gospel, the story of the gospel is not just a ticket out of hell when you die, though it certainly is that. It's a message of saying we are moving to something that is full of glory that we will be transformed into. Luminescence. Jesus began to glow. Go figure. Number two, though, and it gets a little weirder after that. The, the disciples are sitting there with Jesus, and Jesus is glowing, and that's weird enough as it is. But then, of course, two men who had been dead for, I don't know, hundreds of years suddenly show back up in their, in their presence and start having a conversation with them. Moses and Elijah. And you would be right to stop and be like, okay, now we've gotten all weird. <laughs> What in the world does that mean? And you've probably heard, if you spend any time in church at all, someone unpack for you the rather obvious theology of that moment. In the New Testament, bear with me for a second. In the New Testament, they will refer to the Old Testament, oftentimes in the New Testament, as Moses and the prophets. You, you remember the, the story of, the, uh, of Lazarus and the, the rich man and Lazarus. When Lazarus dies and the rich man goes to hell and Lazarus goes to heaven, he's in Abraham's side. And at the end of the story, the father Abraham looks at uh, Lazarus and goes, or looks at uh, the rich man. And he says, look, don't worry about your five brothers because they have, what? Moses and the prophets. They've got the Bible, he says. In other words, Moses are the first five books of the Bible. The prophets would have been everything else. And so what people say is, is when Jesus is transfigured in this moment, it's a way of saying all of the Old Testament, as it is embodied, as it were, in these two great prophets, are pointing forward to me. And I think, honestly, that's quite right. That's a beautiful truth. But it's a little stale, I think, until you remember the lives of these two men. Now look, in the interest of time, I mean, we could do the same thing for Elijah, but I want you to think for just a few seconds about the life of Moses. Moses is a fascinating character. Moses is born into royalty, He's born as a man of privilege. 
He sort of walks, he, know, he understands his own heritage, but he's a man of privilege. He lives among wealth. But all of a sudden, in the most dramatic of fashion, God appears to him and calls him to lead the most ragtag band of annoying people you could ever imagine. And he begins to take some measure of leadership over these people, and they complain and complain and complain. They can never be happy. And no matter how much you try to show them that you freed them from their, their uh, slavery, they want to go back all the time. Doesn't matter how many sermons you preach, doesn't seem to be matter how many sort of miracles you can do in front of him. And it finally sort of culminates in a moment where Moses gets angry at the people. And God has told him to speak to a rock. And water was going to flow out from the rock and give everybody something to drink. But Moses is too angry at these people. And so instead of speaking to the rock, you remember what he does? He strikes it with his rod. Whack! And the water comes flowing out. But what happens to Moses? God comes down to Moses and said, yes, yes, yes. I gave the people what they needed. But because of your disobedience to me, when I told you to speak to the rock and not strike it, you're not going into the promised land. <laughs> what? That's the offense? <laughs> I, I hit it instead of speaking to it? In a moment of clearly justified anger that suddenly now I don't get to, I don't get to have any partaking in the joy that would come from a career spent leading people that you gave me into a land that finally might be some resolution for all the junk that I've been through prior to? Nope. You don't get to go. The passage actually says that God leads Moses up to the top of Mount Nebo to a tomb that nobody ever saw. And I, and I, I realize that the older that you get, the more you think about that moment when you're at that place where God is going to take you home. And when you think about that moment of being in that place, can you imagine what Moses was thinking? Because there is no way that the predominant thought in his mind was not, you are a professional failure. All of the things that you have done, a lot for nothing. Those people are probably still back there complaining to Joshua even as we speak. You know what they were. And now, I don't even get at least a little bit of a taste of what this whole time God is promising. Oh, I get to look at it from afar off. And then I die. Man. Frankly, if you were to look at the life of Moses, like I said, we could do this again for Elijah. Elijah had a very similar experience. If you were to look at the life of these great prophets, it's easy to see that the world would look at them and say, you failed. Your life didn't go the way in which it should have gone. But that's not the last time we hear from Moses now, is it? Suddenly, hundreds, maybe a thousand years later, Moses shows back up on the scene. And what does he get to cast his eyes upon now? There's a part of me that wonders that Moses wasn't in his sort of unglorified, sort of spiritual state, longing to see in other words, it's as if the Bible is saying to you, and I think Jesus is absolutely saying to us, that the promised land is not what your work is about. The milk and the honey 
that come from everyone's adulation of a life well-lived is not the point. The 2.6 well-adjusted children in the suburbs is not the point. The health of body and soul and mind was not the point. All of those things, rather, were pointing away. They were never meant to be the point. It wasn't the promised land that Moses wanted. It wasn't, the, it wasn't the promised land that would have satisfied them. How do we know? Because his people went in and they still weren't satisfied. They went whoring after other gods. <laughs> no, the point is this. The promised land was trying to say to these people, there is something else that's coming. And when he shows up, it'll be better than whatever you thought it could be. Look, these early believers understood that when Moses and Elijah showed up, finally you have a life resolved and not unresolved. And I'm learning that the older that I get, the more little loose strings are just kind of hanging out there of that past offense, of the memory of that thing that I did, of the incessant besetting sin that won't go away. And they hang over there and they speak to you. Nothing has been resolved in you. And yet Moses and Elijah show up and say, (laughs) it wasn't about all that. It was about seeing Jesus. He's the one who brings all of those disparate elements of one's life into resolution. And finally ending in joy. Yeah, Moses and Elijah show up. And then finally, I'm running out of time, God the Father speaks out loud. Frankly, this one's the best one. First of all, you get Jesus glowing over here. Second of all, you get these men who've been dead for 2,000 years show up. And then God speaks out loud. And I love it. Because God says, God the Father says what he says every time when he gets a speaking part in the Bible. Whenever God speaks in the New Testament, you know he does the same thing every time. There's only about three of them. In each and every case where God the Father gets a chance to speak in the New Testament, you know what he's doing? He's doting over his son. (laughs) He's bragging on his son. When I was driving in this morning, I I had this wave of sort of pre-sermon conviction about like, what does it mean to be a godly father? And if you want to be a godlike father, men, um, it means we have to praise our sons. It means that our children need to be de-shamed because there's plenty of shame already working on the inside. And there might be something that would help without the incessant critique I think that they oftentimes feel that we have towards them. <laughs> I digress. But God speaks. And what is he doing? He's doting over his son. he's, He's explaining in the hearing of these disciples, you need to get this, that if you will but listen to him, then you'll understand what my relationship to him and with him is like. And it's that of a father to a child who I adore. And I think that J.I. Packer is right, great historian of theology that he is. When he says that you can really sum up the entirety of Christian religion with this one thought of the fatherhood of God. That until we have allowed the fatherhood of God to sort of sink into us, 
We have missed it in our Christian experience. That is, we can know sort of theoretically that God is my Father. But Jesus is trying to bring these disciples into hearing something existentially about God's fatherhood. To bring it, as it were, into the center of their heart and to hear God saying, as it were, in spite of everything that you have done, I love you. I love you. At the center of this relationship is that I love you. And there is no other love that you could need. You are my child. And you suddenly begin to realize, and as the apostles begin to put this together through the rest of Jesus' ministry, that just months later, Jesus on a cross would scream, not Father, but he would say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that's, that's the thing, isn't it? Isn't that the, isn't that the fear that looms out there, the forsakenness that I fear, that eventually when it all turns out and I stand before him, he will look at me and be a God to me and not a father. And the early apostles looked and said, okay, wait a minute. That means that Jesus (laughs) was bearing my forsakenness so that I could have his sonship. That is, he took what I deserved to give me the thing that I want more than anything else. So brace yourself for it. If that's true, then what may be said to be true of Jesus is now true of me. All of the promises are yes and amen in Christ. God is saying, I want to bring my parental love to assure you of my radical, permanent, unconditional, infinite parent love that comes to you if you know my son Jesus. The point being, (laughs) there is a center that the fatherhood of God and our sonship for him creates in us that makes passages like Isaiah 49, 49, 15 come to life, doesn't it? Where God says through Isaiah, through the prophet Isaiah, can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? I don't know. Never been a mother before. But I'm sure there's all kinds of fears as a mother. I will say this. Every time I've ever preached on guilt, all young mommies come up to me and thank me in tears after that sermon. What's going on? Can a mother forget a baby at her breast? Can she have no compassion on her children? Maybe you can imagine something like that. Maybe you feel this morning like a mother who actually might give that child away if you had the opportunity. Listen to the rest of the verse. Though she may forget, I will not forget you. In other words, if you can imagine something that crazy, I won't forget you. You want to know why? Because when you hear this promise of my love, it will bring something solid into the center of your life so that instead of always feeling empty, instead of always feeling like you need to prove something, instead of always pointing to my circumstances saying, circumstances saying why didn't God make it better? We have a center that says, I don't know. I have no idea, but I know my father's here. Do you have that center? Or does your life get jerked around by the latest Fox News report that comes across? Or CNN, wherever you find yourself this morning. 
Does your life get jerked around by the next piece of suffering? Because on the center, the disciples had found something solid, a sure foundation. And they never forgot it. I want to finish with this last quote from 2 Peter. And it's got a weird twist at the end. Because in this moment, you realize that God did something in these people that was utterly transformational. And they never forgot it. Peter will go on to talk about this in his own letters. He talks about the transfiguration. Listen to what he says from 2 Peter chapter 1, 16 and following. He says, look, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's standing up and saying, we're not just telling you stories, I promise you. He says, but we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. I was there. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, he started to glow. And the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Now look, you're going to have to deal with that if you're a skeptic this morning. you got an eyewitness account that has testified in multiple occasions to seeing something like this. That's interesting. you got to deal with that. And that's what Peter's saying. He's like, we heard it all. I was there. I saw it. And God said, isn't that funny that Peter, what does Peter remember? He remembers the part about God being his father and being pleased with him. He didn't die in the cloud like you were supposed to. Now, here's my question and my little twist for the end. You ever feel a little bit cheated when you read those stories? You ever think to yourself, well, I didn't get to be there. I mean, if I could just, I don't know, have a time machine, go back into time, maybe look at all over myself, sort of see from my own, like hear from my own eyes. I wish I had that. <laughs> Buckle up. Look at verse 19. Peter says, and we, meaning the, the believers that he's preached to, have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. You're thinking to yourself, how do we have that prophetic word from the Father more fully confirmed? I don't know. I thought seeing was believing. I wish I was there. If I could be there, then I really would believe it, right? Right? <laughs> to which you'll do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Yes, that's what I want. I want a dawning of the day and the morning star to rise in my heart. What are you talking about, Peter? Where can I find this? Where is this prophetic word made more sure? Here it is. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Do you see what he's saying? He is saying, put it negatively, if you have come in here this morning to maintain the status quo of your life, you're in the wrong place. Because there is no greater witness in your heart than God could give to his own fatherhood. No greater witness that he could give than for you sitting with a Bible open in your laps or on your eye device, wherever it is. <laughs> that as you read and hear and consider the word of God, it's as good as being there. That's why during my prayer this morning, I said that we have done something incredibly subversive this morning. Have we not? You've come here to done, this morning to consider the word of God. You want to deal with North Korea this morning? 
You, you want to you do something alongside the gifts that we're sending to Texas? You want to pray for peace in our, in our city as it's ripped apart every day? Come here and get into the Bible week in and week out. It's crazy what will happen. Let's pray. And Lord Jesus, we're here and we're asking for you to make that known to us because there's a, a nice, healthy voice inside of our own head that says, yeah, yeah, but I've been doing it forever and I just don't see it. We feel a little bit like Moses, I'm sure. A little bit like Moses who, oh, Father, looks back on their entire lives and wonders if they've ever done anything right. And yet this morning in your word, according to Peter, we've seen in your word, you And that, Lord Jesus, if you by your spirit would sort of light up this testimony inside of our hearts, we would walk away from here changed. May we see your glory. May we see the witnesses you've bared bared in Moses and Elijah. And may we hear your voice giving us that promise this morning. Would you do that? For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.